This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 24, Ancient Greece, A Summary, Part 2. We are already familiar with the story of Alexander III of Macedon. He crossed the Hellespont from Thrace into Achaemenid Persia and defeated the Persians at the Battle of the Granicus before advancing across Anatolia down the Levantine coast to conquer Egypt with relative ease. Alexander would then meet the Persian king on the battlefield at the Mesopotamian site called Galgamela and he would win this battle, effectively opening the Achaemenid Persian rule of these lands up to its eventual destruction. Alexander would then mop up those societies in the east of the Achaemenid Empire such as Bactria and Sogdiana, therefore becoming the new ruler of a Macedonian Empire. Despite Alexander the Great having a reputation for being arguably the greatest military leader of all time, there are areas of controversy. He killed one of his trusted officers, Cletus the Black, with a javelin after a drunken argument. Alexander was insatiable in his desire to subjugate more and more lands, kingdoms and rulers. After the success of the Battle of the Hydaspes, Alexander's army was fed up and mutinous. And Alexander had to make the tough decision upon reaching the city of Taxila to head back towards Mesopotamia to pacify his troops. The way back to Persepolis was troubled. Alexander was almost killed when he was struck by an arrow during the Malian campaign on his way out to the easternmost lands of the Persian Empire. Even though he recovered, many of his army lost their lives, dehydrating in the unforgiving Jedrosian desert. When Alexander did eventually make it back to Mesopotamia, he was furious to learn that some of his officials had ruled irresponsibly in his absence. Alexander understood that he had to take decisive action to prevent tension between the Macedonians and the Persians. So he would punish those officials who had let him down, even executing some, before giving some of the Persians important military status in place of those veteran Macedonian military leaders and soldiers. Alexander also arranged for many of his Macedonian officers to marry the daughters of the noble families of the Persian lands that he had conquered, in a bid to consolidate the people of his new empire. Before Alexander could move on to his next conquest, he fell ill and died in 323 BCE at the age of 32. Alexander's death would trigger great unrest in his vast empire, 
warfare would break out, and particularly in the lands back in the Greek-speaking heartlands. Athens would rise up against Macedonian oppression quite quickly, and we shouldn't be too surprised to hear this. Athens may have struggled to accept its minor role in Greek politics when considering its rich and glorious history. Orators such as Lycorgus would incite Athenians to be patriotic and believe in their city's greatness. Lycorgus died before Alexander the Great's death, but another orator who was still alive was Demosthenes. The Athenians rose up against the Macedonians and almost starved the Macedonian leader Antipater into submission. The Athenians failed when Macedonian reinforcements arrived and Antipater took control of his lands and forces yet again. Antipater showed no sympathy towards the Athenians and defeated them, signalling the end of what is referred to as the Lamian War and disassembling the democratic governance of the polis. A number of Alexander's chief statesmen and military generals were eager to take a piece of Alexander's vast empire for themselves. One of the most fortunate was a man called Ptolemy, who became Ptolemy I Sota, the satrap of Egypt and styled as the new pharaoh. Ptolemy would look to consolidate his area of influence by annexing Judea and parts of Syria in a bid to have a wealthy empire. Agreements were made about the division of the Macedonian Empire, but in reality, the Diadochi, Alexander's successors, were too hungry and also too wary of each other for there to ever be a truly peaceful solution. Anyone who could have had any kind of influence on the future of these lands was potentially a threat to someone else. Alexander the Great's mother, Olympias, was murdered for having too much influence on the future of Greek lands, and Alexander the Great's son, Alexander IV, was also murdered as he was approaching the age where he may rule in his own right. Nobody who had any influence over the future of the Diadochi and their lands was safe. Ptolemy I Sota was well established in Ptolemaic Egypt, while a man called Seleucus I Nicator established himself in Persia and Anatolia as the head of the Seleucid Empire. In Macedonia, the Antigonid dynasty would become established, but it would be the son of the man called Antigonus I Monophthalmus, who would be the first Antigonid king of Macedon. Antigonus's son was called Demetrius, and he would be an important character during the age of the Diadochi. Firstly, liberating Athens from Macedonian rule under Cassander, before defeating Cassander's ally Ptolemy in a sea battle and taking the island of Cyprus. Demetrius's father, Antigonus, 
was killed in a huge battle at Ipsus in 301 BCE by Seleucus and his ally, the Thracian ruler Lysimachus. Seleucus would consolidate his achievement by founding the city of Antioch in the north of the Levant. The 3rd century BCE So the Hellenistic period of history was in full flow going into the 3rd century BCE. Even with the battling Diadochi, the Hellenistic societies were keen to be at the forefront of academia. Antioch was built by Seleucus to rival Alexandria, the incredible new city in Ptolemaic Egypt. Ptolemy would build the wonderful lighthouse of Alexandria, sometimes called the Pharos of Alexandria, as well as the academic establishment called the Museum, which housed the Library of Alexandria, and this would be Ptolemy I's Sota's legacy to Egyptian history before he abdicated his throne in favour of his son, Ptolemy II Philadelphus. It's thanks to the literary works of the Hellenistic societies such as the Ptolemies that we can understand some of the advances in knowledge by this time in our history. A man called Herophilus, who originated in Chalcedon in Asia Minor, studied in Alexandria and is known as one of the first great anatomists. Not only would he perform human dissections and autopsies, but he would also perform vivisections, which are operations on live people, often prisoners. He would make intense studies of the brain and its relationship with the human nervous system, including its relationship with the eye and the physical characteristics of the human eye itself. One man who worked alongside him was a man called Erasistratus, and we know that they both conducted these grim vivisections, but also they identified the distinct areas of the brain called the cerebrum and the cerebellum. We're not entirely sure where Erasistratus originates from, such are the similarities between the names of Greek islands, but he could have originated on the island of Kos, as this was the birthplace of another man, Praxagoras, who differentiated between veins and arteries, something which Erasistratus was also one of the first advocates of in this theory. As we know, during the previous century, Aristotle was tutoring the young Alexander the Great before he became the king of Macedon and achieved his great conquest of Persia. Despite this, Aristotle actually outlived Alexander the Great, albeit by only a year. But when Alexander was achieving his incredible achievements, Aristotle had commissioned an academy in Athens called the Lyceum. It was after the death of Alexander that the anti-Macedonian sentiment required Aristotle to flee Athens. And his position as the head of the Lyceum was assumed by a lesbian called Theophrastus. And in this context, a lesbian is somebody from the island of Lesbos. 
Theophrastus was an expert botanist and developed a classification system for plants. Theophrastus was succeeded as the director of the Lyceum by a man called Strato of Lampsacus, a place just on the Asian side of the Hellespont. Strato made an argument for the existence of a vacuum by observing the nature of the compression of air. The people of Greek-speaking lands were truly integral to the development of modern science. It's the Romans who are often thought of as the first society to have used a hypercoursed system of central heating where hot air circulating underneath the floor of a room or a building could generate the warmth required to keep the residents comfortable. However, this type of heating could have originated in ancient Greek times, evidenced at findings in the Anatolian city of Ephesus. We shouldn't be surprised by this kind of innovation when we consider that fueling the fire at the top of the lighthouse of Alexandria would have required innovative hydraulic engineering to achieve. We know of expert physical constructors in Egypt, such as the sculptor Polycletus the Younger, who was also a renowned architect constructing the theatre of Epidaurus. However, a great deal of theoretical expertise needed to exist to successfully pull off such construction, and so individuals such as Euclid were very highly regarded. Euclid was a student at the Museum of Alexandria who published works called Elements that tackled geometry and these works were used to teach this branch of mathematics right up until modern times. This branch of mathematics would have influenced the great Sicilian Greek mathematician Archimedes Archimedes was able to apply geometric principles to calculating the circumference and area of a circle. There exists a story about Archimedes that when he was taking a bath, he realised that the volume of displaced water represented the volume of the object placed in the water, and that this prompted Archimedes to run down the street without any clothes on, shouting, Eureka! You can make your own mind up about that one. It is likely that geometric principles also assisted in the study of astrophysics. During the previous century, Aristotle supported the idea of a geocentric universe, which means that the Earth is at the centre. A man called Aristarchus from the island of Samos theorised that it was actually the sun that was the centre of the universe, which was called a heliocentric model, and much nearer to the truth than Aristotle's belief. It was during this century that a man called Eratosthenes of Cyrene migrated to Alexandria and made the first well-known calculation of the Earth's circumference and the tilt of the planet's axis. 
One man who would be highly respected for his application of geometric and astronomical theories and someone who would be highly influenced by the work of both Euclid and Archimedes was a man called Apollonius of Perga. So we really can see the incredible advances in knowledge during this period and also how the academical approaches of those who followed the Platonic alumni strongly influenced the acceleration of knowledge of the Hellenistic academics and this ability to transfer advanced information would have been a powerful ally of the military forces when aspiring to be the most dominant society of the Hellenistic period. The last surviving member of the Diadochi was Seleucus Nicator, the founder of the Seleucid Empire and the man assassinated by Ptolemy Karaunos. Seleucus was on his way to claim the lands of Lysimachus who had been defeated in battle not long before and his lands were on the European side of the Hellespont. This was the end of the Age of the Diadochi. One of the more intriguing characters of this period was King Pyrrhus of Epirus. His name has popped up time and time again during this podcast, not just as a king who became embroiled in the politics of the Age of the Diadochi, even briefly co-ruling Macedonia with Lysimachus of Thrace. In 280 BCE, Pyrrhus would send troops over to the Greek colonies of the Italian peninsula, which was referred to by the name of Magna Graecia. The idea would be to help to defend them against the growing influence of an emerging republic based at the city of Rome and known to us today as the Romans. Despite being successful in both Magna Graecia and Sicily, so high were the losses of Pyrrhus that his victories were effectively meaningless. Pyrrhus would have to return home. He would then return to his own side of the Ionian Sea where he would launch an attack on Macedon and successfully dethrone the king, proclaiming himself as the new king of Macedon. However, in 272 BCE, Pyrrhus would launch an attack on the Spartans in the Peloponnese and this is where Pyrrhus would ultimately lose his life. The 3rd century BCE was the time of the Syrian Wars. We have learned of how Ptolemy I Soter, ruler of Egypt, and Seleucus I Nicator of Babylon were two Diadochi who were quite supportive of each other during their most influential years. However, Ptolemy exploited an opportunity to take control of some of the lands of the Levant and the modern country of Syria that had actually been officially allocated to Seleucus in the aftermath of the Battle of Ipsus, the Battle of 301 BCE that was a pivotal point in the fortunes of the Diadochi. Seleucus was indifferent about claiming these lands and maintained a somewhat friendly relationship with Ptolemaic Egypt. But that same relaxed understanding 
was not carried on by their successors. We have learned that Ptolemy I Sota was succeeded as the pharaoh of Ptolemaic Egypt by his son Ptolemy II Philadelphus. Seleucus II Nicator was also succeeded by his son Antiochus I Sota. Antiochus was not particularly interested in having friendly agreements with the Ptolemies and decided to go after those Syrian lands which he believed to be rightfully his. However, Ptolemy was not interested in entertaining Antiochus's ambitions or surrendering any of his possessions, and the First Syrian War ended in Ptolemaic victory. The First Syrian War was the first of what has been recognised as six Syrian wars between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. The Second War broke out in the 250s BCE, and this time the Seleucids commissioned the assistance of Antigone Macedon, who would have shared the common enemy of the Ptolemies. However, Antigone Macedon had their own issues to deal with, so they may not have been as supportive of the Seleucids as they may have liked. The Seleucid ruler Antiochus II Theos married Ptolemy II Philadelphus's daughter in an attempt to reach a peaceful resolution via a marriage alliance. Both Ptolemy II and Antiochus II died and there was a succession crisis in the Seleucid Empire that resulted in the murder of Ptolemy II's daughter, Antiochus II's wife, and this would cause another conflict, the Third Syrian War, and it broke out between Ptolemaic Egypt and the Seleucid Empire. Antigone Macedon would once again engage the Ptolemies during this conflict during the 240s BCE, but this is also a time where civil unrest within the Seleucid Empire would lead to an attempt for autonomy by a Seleucid dynasty in the lands of Syria. The Seleucid ruler of the main empire was Seleucus II Callinicus, and it was he who suffered defeat at the hands of the growing entity of Parthia in the east under the rule of Tiridates. By the 3rd century BCE, Celtic peoples from the north of the Greek-speaking lands had started taking an active interest in the affairs of the Balkan Peninsula, even attacking the sacred city of Delphi. These Celtic peoples also settled an area of Anatolia that would be called Galatia, and this was also around the same time as the emergence of the Kingdom of Pergamon. So this new kingdom of Pergamon was on the Asian side of the Hellespont and if you continued to head east you would come to the Celtic area of Galatia. Athens was still an important city during this period. The Ptolemies actually tried to support the Athenians against the Antigonid Macedonians during the 260s BCE. However, the Ptolemies were unable to prevent the Macedonians from putting Athens under siege and the siege was so effective 
that Athens had to fully submit to the Macedonians, who in turn were able to chase the Ptolemies out of the Aegean region altogether. The Macedonians wouldn't always have things their own way in the Balkans, and in the 240s BCE, they were expelled from the Peloponnese by a force led by a man called Aratus of Sicyon. So a hundred years on from the lifetime of Alexander the Great, and there was a great competition for lands involving all of the Hellenistic cultures. In 223 BCE, Antiochus III, later to be known as Antiochus the Great, ascended to the Seleucid throne, and the Seleucid Empire would battle back against its enemies. It wasn't all plain sailing for Antiochus initially, as he attempted to win back territories from the Egyptians during the Fourth Syrian War, as he suffered defeat at the Battle of Raphia to Ptolemy IV Philopater, which took place in the modern Gaza Strip area of Palestine. So Antiochus turned his attentions to Armenia and Parthia, and by 209 BCE he had managed to subdue both kingdoms. After the death of Ptolemy IV in 204 BCE, Antiochus saw an opportunity to capitalise on the instability of Ptolemaic Egypt, and took the lands of Coeli Syria and Judea from them during the Fifth Syrian War. The Ptolemies had been pushed right out of their Levantine lands. Now if we go back 20 years to when Antiochus III became the ruler of the Seleucid Empire, then this would have also been around the same time when Philip V became the ruler of Antigonid Macedon. Philip would rule during a pivotal time in Macedonian history and the Macedonians had high hopes for him as their new, fresh-faced warrior king. While the Punic Wars were taking place between the Romans and the Carthaginians, Philip saw an opportunity to invade the only lands of the Balkan Peninsula that the Romans had influence over, in the Illyrian lands directly north of Epirus. This would spark the Macedonian Wars, when the Romans came to the defence of Illyria and ran the Macedonians out, restoring the status quo by the conclusion of the First Macedonian War. Illyria would be officially named as a shared protectorate. Second century BCE It was clear for all to see that the Romans were becoming a significant power with control of the entire Italian peninsula and the entire Mediterranean coastline of the Iberian Peninsula as well as the large islands of Corsica, Sardinia and Sicily previously occupied by the Carthaginians and the Syracusans. The significant kingdoms of Pergamon and Rhodes were happy to support the Romans against Philip V's Macedon and so began the Second Macedonian War. Philip had nowhere to turn. The Greek cities of Sparta and Athens 
were happy to be liberated from Macedonian rule. And so this was the outcome. Philip's imperial possessions and ambitions had been subtracted by the Romans and their allies. Over the course of the beginning of the century, it was clear that Rome's imperial power was growing and this would cause a lot of nations to look over their shoulders, with Rome now rivalling the Seleucid Empire in terms of its population, which is something that Antiochus III of the Seleucids would find hard to ignore. The Romans had become increasingly involved in Greek affairs, and this alienated their Greek allies of the Aetolian League, who sided with Antiochus the Great in a conflict between the Romans and the Seleucids. The two sides would clash over the lands of the Aegean, which is not surprising considering the value of these lands when you consider that both empires had to consider each other as a threat, given that they were the two greatest empires. It would be the Romans who would come out on top, winning key battles at Thermopylae on the Balkan Peninsula and Magnesia on the Anatolian Peninsula, and Antiochus would have to retreat. Rome's allies Pergamon and Rhodes would benefit hugely from this result. Pergamon would become a great centre of culture, with a library to rival that of the Ptolemaic city of Alexandria. If we go back to episode 22, then we briefly discussed the integration of Greek culture in the Jewish heartlands of the Levant, and how Jewish diaspora emerged in other Hellenistic centres. However, there was a significant episode in this relationship during the 2nd millennium BCE. Antiochus IV would become the ruler of the Seleucid Empire in 175 BCE. Antiochus IV continued the war with the Egyptians, in which he was very successful, managing to occupy much of Egypt. However, this great achievement is not Antiochus IV's legacy. The thing that he is most remembered for is the way he treated the Jews. Antiochus's motivation was Hellenization. He wanted Jerusalem to be respectful of Hellenic culture. So he stormed Jerusalem and is said to have desecrated the second temple of Jerusalem by symbolically sacrificing a pig at the temple in honour of the Greek god Zeus. However, this was just a deliberate attempt to Hellenise Jerusalem by outlawing Jewish practice and punishing anybody that did. However, this turned into another heroic biblical episode for the Jews. The Jewish priest Mattathias the Hasmonean rallied a revolt against the Seleucids called the Maccabean Revolt, named after the Maccabee brothers who were the sons of Mattathias. After Mattathias's death during the revolt, his son Judah Maccabee would head the revolt himself. Eventually, the revolt was a success, 
Judah Maccabee led the revolt back into Jerusalem himself, but he didn't survive to see the outcome. The Maccabees were able to reinstate Judaism over Hellenistic Judaism, and the Seleucids would be helpless to prevent the evolution of a kingdom of Judah. Maccabees are the names of the books of the Tanakh, or the Old Testament, and the Jewish festival of Hanukkah celebrates the rededication of the Second Temple thanks to the Maccabean revolt. So we've reached a point now where the shadow of the mighty Romans is bearing down on the Hellenistic world. So before we explore this final chapter of ancient Greek history, let us take a look at some of the later academic and scientific innovations of these wonderful ancestors of the modern world that we live in today. Hipparchus of Nicaea was a mathematician of the second century BCE who advanced the study of trigonometry, something that was evidently well studied before Hipparchus, but he is still referred to as the father of trigonometry. As an astronomer, he would work out that the cycle of the Earth's axis had a cycle of many thousands of years, and he would use the work of astronomers before him to make his calculations. The highly respected polymath called Posidonius of Apamea was able to make a respectable measurement of the size of the Earth and the size and distance of the Moon. Asclepiades of Bithynia was a physician who developed quite a modern method of treatment for ill health, which concentrated on good lifestyle such as exercise and diet, and relaxation with music being good therapy for mental health, among other things. His work was quite well received by the Romans, who had taken great notice of the academic skills of people from Greek lands. A delegation of philosophers from Athens went to Rome in 155 BCE to make practical negotiations, but ended up being celebrated for the display of their knowledge there. Advances in engineering were considerable. Ctesibius of Alexandria invented an air pressure pump that pneumatically propelled water and would be a vital part of the engineering of the first firefighting water pumps. Also in the year 1900, an ancient mechanism was discovered near the island of Antikythera. It resembled a set of gears, which has been suggested to be part of an analogue computer, which was possibly used to predict eclipses. The Decline of Hellenism Hellenism emanated from the lands of Alexander the Great's Macedonian Kingdom. In 179 BCE, King Philip V of Macedon died and was succeeded by his son Perseus. Hellenistic nations existed from as far west as Macedon all the way over to the Indo-Greek kingdoms near the Indus Valley 
where the Indo-Greek king Menander I Sota had created an empire incorporating lands from Bactria to the Indo-Greek kingdom. Perseus of Macedonia made no secret of the fact that he hated the Romans and tensions escalated before erupting into the Third Macedonian War. This war concluded with the Romans defeating Perseus in 168 BCE and taking him prisoner. Macedon had no king and the Romans took over the rule. Perseus died in captivity. The Antigonid dynasty was over and Macedon was now Roman. There was a Macedonian uprising in 150 BCE but this amounted to nothing as the Romans defeated the uprising and Macedonian lands were simply a part of the Roman Republic's empire. The Greek faction that had supported the Roman cause during the course of the Macedonian Wars was the Achaean League but now that was surplus to requirements. The Romans destroyed Corinth and the Balkan Peninsula now belonged to them. By the middle of the 2nd century BCE, Hellenistic lands were contained to Thrace and Anatolia, a pocket of societies in the east that had not been subjugated by the Parthians such as Bactria and the Indo-Greek kingdom, Ptolemaic Egypt which was still prospering with long distance sea trade networks being exploited by expert seafarers such as Eudoxus of Cyzicus, who was crossing over to Indian territories and heading as far west as the west coast of Africa, and then the Seleucid Empire, which was being threatened on its eastern front by the Parthians. The Seleucids were still doing battle with the Ptolemies at this point, with the Ptolemies defeating and killing the Seleucid ruler, Alexander Ballas, at the Battle of Antioch in 145 BCE, and Demetrius II taking his place, only to have his hands full preventing the Parthian threat in the east. The Seleucid Empire was reducing in size and was restricted to lands in and around Syria. When the king of Pergamon died without issue in 133 BCE, he would bequeath the kingdom to the Romans, who would now have a foothold in the Asian side of the Hellespont. Despite a rebellion instigated by a man called Aristonicus, who proclaimed himself as King Eumenes III, the Romans would put down a rebellion, capture Aristonicus and make Pergamon a province of the Roman Republic's empire, therefore ending the glorious Attalid dynasty years of the Kingdom of Pergamon. By the end of the 2nd century BCE, Ptolemaic Egypt was struggling to keep control of its own personal affairs, with many members of the Ptolemaic dynasty involved in the act of trying to depose each other. The kingdom itself would suffer as a result of these civil conflicts. Ptolemy IX Sota came to the throne in 116 BCE. His elder brother had been killed during a civil conflict some years before. However, his own mother arranged to have him deposed in favour 
of another brother who would rule Egypt as Ptolemy X until the Alexandrians ran Ptolemy X out of Egypt and reinstated Ptolemy IX. None of this was good for the health and wealth of the kingdom. By 69 BCE, the Romans had taken control of Anatolia and were battling with the Armenians, who had created their own powerful kingdom during the earliest years of the 1st century BCE, thanks to the work of their king, Tigranes II, known to history as Tigranes the Great. Armenia had been going toe-to-toe in battle with the Parthians and the Seleucids. Such was its status in the world. Now, however, the Romans invaded and defeated the Armenians at the Battle of Tigranokerta and restored some of the Syrian lands to the heavily reduced Seleucid Empire. Coming out from under the shadows of the Armenians, the Seleucids proclaimed Antiochus XIII as their ruler of the new rump state that was really just a client state of the Roman Republic. By 63 BCE, the Roman general Pompey overthrew the state and turned it into a province, which ended the existence of the Seleucid Empire after over 200 years. The Romans had themselves expanded eastwards from their African base in Carthage along the North African coast and was now in complete control of the coastlines of the Mediterranean Sea. By now they were also heavily influenced in Egyptian politics, attempting to influence who was ruling the Ptolemaic kingdom for their own gain and advantage. Not only was Egypt a fertile land, but it was also the shortest land crossing from the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea, which led to the opportunities of the Indian Ocean. Ptolemy XII of Egypt remained somewhat loyal to Rome, and this may have been in a bid to prevent Rome from simply annexing the land. However, the Egyptian people were not necessarily happy about having any kind of relationship which made their kingdom subservient to Rome, and Ptolemy XII was under pressure to keep a balance between the Egyptian people and the Romans. In 59 BCE, Ptolemy XII was expelled from Egypt, only to be restored four years later. After his death in 51 BCE, Egypt would be ruled by his children, Ptolemy XIII and Cleopatra VII. As the politics of Rome altered, Pompey fell out of favour with the new popular politician, Julius Caesar, and as such, Pompey would flee for the safety of Egypt. However, Ptolemy XIII feared the repercussions of harbouring Pompey and promptly arranged to have him murdered to keep the peace. However, this would have the opposite effect with Julius Caesar being horrified to hear about this eventuality befalling his respected rival and made an alliance with Ptolemy XIII's estranged sister-wife and co-ruler Cleopatra VII. 
Julius Caesar then ran Ptolemy XIII out of Egypt, and Ptolemy XIII would die while fleeing the country. Cleopatra was now the sole ruler of Egypt. After Caesar's death, the Roman general Mark Antony would become responsible for the maintenance of the eastern provinces of Rome. Cleopatra feared that it was only a matter of time before the Romans formally annexed Egypt, as they had done with every other land around the Mediterranean. So when Mark Antony fell out with the ruler of the Roman Republic, Octavian, Cleopatra made a political and marital alliance with Mark Antony. However, the powerful Octavian was ultimately too great and knowing that it was only a matter of time before they were captured, Mark Antony and Cleopatra both committed suicide in the year 30 BCE. And the Romans turned Egypt into a Roman province, as they had done with Macedon, the Balkan Peninsula, including Corinth, Athens and the Peloponnese, Pergamon, Rhodes, the Seleucid Empire and even the Hasmonean Kingdom of Judah before it. In the years following the Indo-Greek kingdoms would be conquered by Indo-Scythians and that would really signal the end of any kind of Hellenistic culture of any significance and power and so our story of the history of ancient Greece now comes to an end. Well, there you go. We've made it to the end of the Ancient Greek series. And uh, that's 19 episodes, back to back to back. And we've uh, eventually completed it. So I'm so pleased that we've done that. And thank you ever so much for listening. And I hope you found these summary episodes interesting. Next uh, next time we're going to be looking at uh, Rome. But it might not be uh, for a couple of weeks yet. I've been extremely busy, I'll be honest with you. It's been quite hard work, actually, keeping on top of the podcast commitment. So um, what we're planning to do for the next couple of weeks is catch up with some of the special episodes that our patrons have kindly suggested for a podcast uh, broadcast. So we've got um, two episodes lined up that are going to take us away from this whole uh, classical timeline chronology and into and it's going to throw us into a completely different world so for example uh, the first one that we're going to do actually focuses on one of the european world families of the early modern world so so that'll be interesting i'm not going to give too much away about that i'm going to keep you guessing a little bit um, needless to say, it was uh, maybe sort of 16th and 17th century. So that that might give you a little bit of a clue. But that's where we're going next. And then uh, we're going to Rome. So um, we'll explore the origins of uh, the Roman kingdom. Uh, but that will be in uh, two or three weeks' time now. So... That's the that's the plan for the podcast. I'm having a little bit of uh, trouble accessing the reviews, actually, um, for the podcast, the latest reviews. So I'm going to leave that till next week. 
the only other thing to report, actually, is that we've got a new member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. And that person is Stefan Perrin. So welcome along to the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. How did he become a member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati? Well, what he did, he probably went to the History of the World podcast.com. He probably clicked on the Patreon link at the top of the page and he definitely signed up to make a monthly donation to the podcast to help me to keep it going and to keep it healthy. And if you'd like to do the same, you just do exactly the same. You go to the History of the World Podcast.com web pages and uh, you will see a link to Patreon on the top. If you click on that, and then just sign up to make a monthly donation. Help me to keep the podcast going and also qualify for the rewards that are outlined on the page. So, for example, uh, if you if you donate $10 over any length of time, it doesn't have to be one um, donation of $10 or it doesn't necessarily have to be a monthly donation of $10. It can be a $1 donation over 10 months. You'll still qualify for the reward. Um, you can get a question answered at the end of one of the podcast episodes. Um, if you donate up to fifty dollars, you get uh, you get a gift pack sent through the post, and we've already sent loads of them out already to those who have reached that threshold. And if you reach the one hundred dollar uh, the one hundred dollars mark, then you can commission your own special episode, and uh, that's exactly what we're going to be doing for at least two of our uh, of our lucky patrons who have qualified for the reward of having their own episode done on the subject of their choosing. Uh, so hopefully the first one of those will be next week. Uh, other than that, um, if things uh, if things still remain tricky for me at this end, uh, while all this COVID-19 is going on, I'm actually finding that my time is being monopolised, so not as not as much time to devote to the podcast as I would like. Um, so if I'm struggling, we'll definitely have an unscripted episode or two thrown in while I sort of get in front of the writing of the podcast again. But rest assured, um, we still always intend to post a broadcast each and every week and we try and make it as interesting as possible as well so don't worry we'll always be here and um, of course now that I'm signing off always wish you a good week and uh, hope to see you this time next week and don't forget to be good Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website historyoftheworldpodcast.com you can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.